0: In book three of his poem on the nature of things, after he has explained to us how the mind and spirit interconnected with each other and interconnected with the body are actually material composed of very, very fine atoms, Lucretius is going to ask, well, what kind of atoms is it actually made of? And we're probably not going to accept the physics that is underlying the distinctions that he's gonna make and the explanations that he's gonna provide, but we can follow along and see what it is that he's saying and determine whether we think that there's anything to something analogous to this. And so he begins by telling us, it must not be supposed the stuff of mind or spirit is a single element, simplex natura. So they're not just like mind stuff or something like that. We can formulate what they are in terms of other kinds of things, elements as we can call them. And the choice of elements here is going to be a little bit unfamiliar to people who are used to thinking about, you know, the Greeks had four elements, earth, air, fire, water. And then maybe a fifth element, the quintessence, you know, that was attributed to Aristotle. That could be the the subject of mind or something like that. So Lucretius is actually going to single out some other types of elements that we can see in other things besides the human being. So he tells us the body at death, this is what is lacking, is abandoned by a sort of rarefied wind. The first term that he uses for that is our which can mean wind or breeze or something like that, a movement of the air. And then he uses the term ventus, which also means wind as well. And this may strike us as a bit weird to think of the wind itself as being an element, particularly since he's gonna contrast it against another element, air itself. What's the difference between wind and air? You just kind of have to go with him on this. You could call them element one, element two, element three, if you like, if that helps you out. So we have wind, right? And then the wind is mixed with warmth vapore literally the word we get vapor from so like steam or you could use this of incense or something like that as well but he also is going to talk about heat calor and he's going to use that a bit more throughout his explanation so now we've got two elements wind which has heat and again forget everything that you know about modern physics try to put yourself in the perspective of the epicureans at the time and then he goes on and he says well warm. Warmth carries with it also air. And the Latin for that is just air, the word that we actually get air from. So we've got now three different elements. And he says that indeed heat never occurs without air being mixed with it. Because it is naturally sparse, it must have many atoms of air moving in its interstices. What are interstices? Little holes, little gaps in which other things can go in right? If we think about the fabric, for example, that my shirt and tie are made of, they look very solid. But if we looked at it very closely, we'd see all sorts of little gaps, right? And that's in a fabric that's tied together. That's at a macro level compared to these elements. So these elements, interpenetrate each other not that the atoms themselves interpenetrate but the we could call them larger composites of the atoms have lots and lots of possibility for interacting with each other for flowing into each other through these interstices so now we've got these three different elements and he goes on and he says so the composition of mind is thus far found to be at least threefold three different things working together in the mind, in the spirit. And then he says, these three components together are not enough to create sentience, the capacity to sense things, right? The mind does not admit that any of these can create the sensory motions That originate the meditations revolved in the mind. We see that there's air. We see that there's wind. We see that there's heat outside of ourselves. And those things don't produce, you know, like a fire by itself is not sentient. I mean, we can say, well, you know, it it feels its way to where the wood is. No, no, uh, Lucretius doesn't buy into that. So he says, we have to add to these a fourth component, which is quite nameless than this, there is nothing more mobile or more tenuous. So wind, heat, and air are by themselves very mobile and tenuous. The, the entirety of our mind and spirit are that way as well. But this goes even further in that way. Then he says, this is what first sets the sensory motions coursing through the limbs. Owing to the minuteness of its atoms, it is first to be stirred. Then the motions are, Then there's like a chain here, right? So first, the fourth element, is stirred for the fourth element does things and then heat catches on the atoms that are composing heat that are intersecting with this fourth element and its atoms are moved and then what happens after that the unseen energy of wind and then air and then it gets into our body itself and our body's atoms, the much larger and heavier and harder to be moved things that, you know, he says bones and marrow are thrilled with the pleasure or the opposite excitement, right? So what we've got here is kind of an interesting account for how it is that our minds and our vital spirit throughout our body interconnected with each other, how they actually are brought into motion, how it is that we can have thoughts about things. And he tells us that these atoms of these elements, they intersect with each other. There's a beautiful line here where he says the atoms rush in and out amongst one another on atomic trajectories so that no one of them can be segregated nor its distinctive power isolated by intervening space they coexist like the many properties of a single body here he's giving us an analogy so what do we know about a body that's observable because remember i mean the fourth element totally unobservable right these other elements not really observable by say the naked eye right but he's saying that these are here So, you know, in the flesh of any living thing, he says, there are regularly scent and color and taste. So sensible properties, right? And yet from all of these, there's formed only one corporeal bulk. It's not as if you first have the scent and then the color and then taste and you just like glom them all together as if we're doing computer programs or something like that. And boom, you've got a substance. No, they are there all together. So he's saying that these actually form a single substance within us that we call the mind or intellect and the vital spirit, unum naturum. So he's not saying substance, but, you know, close enough to that and he goes on and he says just so warmth and air and the unseen energy of wind create in combination a single substance together with that mobile force which imparts to them the initial impetus from which the sensory motion takes its rise throughout the flesh so all four of these are working together this basic substance he says lurks at our very core there's nothing in our bodies more fundamental than this the most vital element of the whole vital spirit so well, this is this is what our minds and our spirit actually are. And they then go into and penetrate and, you know, essentially use the rest of the body that they're connected with. So it says, In the same way wind and air and warmth commingled through the limbs must interact, one being relatively latent, another prominent. In appearance, a single stuff is formed by them all. Warmth and wind and air do not display their powers separately to blot out sentience and dissolve it by their their disunion. And then he's going to say, interestingly, you get different things from these different elements. He doesn't tell us about the fourth element in this way, because we already know what it's bringing. Sentience, the capacity to think, that sort of thing. But each of these has, you could say, emotions or attitudes associated with it, which are reflections of the relative importance or agency of each of these. So he begins with talking about heat. It brings this element into play when it boils with rage and passion blazes more fiercely from the eyes. So when we're being very active, when we're being perhaps competitive, when we're angry, when we're seeking revenge, when we're responding to threats, when we get angry... uh, in general, that is this element of heat that is coming to the fore the opposite of this to some degree he says there's no lack of that chill wind companion of fright fear which sets the limbs a tremble and impels them to flight and then lastly there's that calm and steady air which prevails in a tranquil breast and unruffled countenance so we've essentially got three different kinds of temperaments here or Things that produce emotions within us, anger and activity, fear and you know flightfulness, and then finally a stolidity or sanguine aspect as well associated with air. And he gives us some examples of animals having determinate characteristics for their species based on this. Now, he tells us something kinda crazy about lions. I'm not sure where he's getting this from. In those creatures whose passionate hearts and angry dispositions easily boil up in anger, there is a surplus of the hot element. And he says, lions roar until they burst their chests with bellowing and cannot keep the torrents of their rage pent within their hearts. If this is understood metaphorically, like you know, the lion's roar is just so aggressive and scary, great. If he thinks that they actually like burst open their chests, uh, you know, you gotta wonder where the... Observation of animal behavior is coming in here. And then he talks about deer. He says the cold hearts of deer are of a windier blend. They are quicker to set chill breezes flowing through the flesh, provoking a shuddering movement in their limbs, right? So they they very easily feel fear or anxiety or panic or something like that because of the wind element predominating. And then he talks about cattle. Cattle have a bigger portion of calm air. They're never too hotly fired by the torch of anger they're never transfixed and benumbed by the icy shaft of fear their nature he says is a mean between the timidity of the deer and the lion's ferocity so this suggests that maybe there's like a continuum going on here but we could also think of this as like a being out of that spectrum and doing its own thing as well now what about us human beings we have different compositions within our souls he says though education or teaching literally people can be educated it can apply a similar polish to various individuals it can like try to give them the same characteristics he says it still leaves fundamental traces vestigii in in plural is the word you know when we say that something is vested vestigial there is like a little bit of it left over or like an aftertaste you could say right and these are of our original compositions of our souls and our minds so he says it must not be supposed that innate vices can be completely eradicated one person will still incline too readily to outbursts of rage another will give way to fear too soon a third will accept some contingencies too passively each of these is associated with an element predominating within our soul and so he says men must differ from one another in temperament and also in the resultant behavior so he's providing here an explanation for human comportment human attitudes and things like that and he says i'm not going to try to explain that that's beyond my power i don't even have a names for the multiplicities of atomic shapes that give rise to this variety of types but i am clear there is one relevant fact i can affirm the lingering traces of inborn temperament that cannot be eliminated by philosophy are so slight there's nothing." to prevent people from living a life equal to the God. So he is actually saying, as opposed to the other animals that are kind of stuck with the souls that they have or the spirits that they have, by education we can actually modify our composition of elements or how they're working together within the human mind and it's kind of hinted here that maybe that fourth element plays a role in that but he doesn't he doesn't go on to explain it but you know where else is the educator and educated what's going to be going on in there it's probably going to be a matter of this this fourth element of sentience and reflexivity you could say so this is uh, how Lucretius thinks the mind and the spirit, the animus and anima, are actually composed of material elements, which then play a very significant role in leading to different attitudes and behavior. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.